This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to present today's session director, the prestigious professor, Dr. Hope Rugo. Dr. Rugo is a hematologist-oncologist who is a leader in breast cancer treatment across the globe. She's the director of the UCSF Breast Oncology Clinical Trials Program and Clinical Trials Education at UCSF, and in addition, she's an active clinician, very active clinician. She holds many titles, and we're thrilled to have her lead today's program. With that, today's outline includes to this intro, and Dr. Hope Rugo will introduce her speakers, and the speakers will present to all of you. We'll save about 20 minutes at the end for Q&A, and we look forward to answering your questions. And then last, Dr. Braunfield will wrap up the entire course. And with that, I'd like to hand it over to Professor Hope Rugo. Thanks so much. Uh, and uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to participate in this excellent series that uh, you and Dr. Braunfield have put together in order to provide this educational opportunity on various aspects of cancer. And of course, I have a lot of interest in novel therapeutics and novel imaging, as well as supportive care. So this is right up my alley, I, although I focus on breast medical oncology. And we thought a lot about who and how we were going to select the topics for this evening's session, because of course, there are many new developments in the diagnosis and treatment and supportive care for cancer. But what we did was pick out three very exciting areas that we think are really going to or already play an incredibly important role in the treatment or diagnosis and management of patients with cancer. So we have three topics. The first by uh, Dr. Mark Magmanua, is, uh, who's in the Department of Laboratory Medicine here at UCSF, will focus on circulating tumor DNA or so-called cell-free DNA, where little fragments of the tumor DNA circulate around in the blood and can be used for many different purposes, as you hear about. We're really excited about this new technology for a number of different reasons that, again, Mark will talk about. Then we're going to talk about an area that's also really, really important in diagnosis and management of cancer, which is imaging. And Dr. Courtney Lawnheath, who's an assistant professor in nuclear radiology at UCSF, will talk about really very cool novel imaging techniques. And then uh, lastly, and certainly not least, Dr. Rahul Banerjee, who's an advanced a bone marrow transplant fellow who's done a lot of work in CAR T cells, which you'll hear about more, an amazing new, relatively new technique, which is now established in the treatment of hematologic malignancies and is being widely studied. Dr. Banerjee is a senior fellow who will be moving to uh, Washington to the Fred Hutchinson Institute to continue his work as a faculty member there uh, this summer. So I'm very excited about our topics and we'll look forward to your questions. Remember to use the Q&A box at the bottom to submit your questions while people are speaking because we can tee up your questions to answer them in uh, the last portion of this evening's session. So without further ado, uh, we'll look forward to hearing about cell-free DNA or circulating tumor DNA by Dr. Mark Magvanova. Thank you for participating, Mark. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, 
to discuss this really exciting topic of uh, and liquid biopsy research. And this is liquid biopsy is a new tool for cancer care and management of patients with cancer. Let me start out with defining uh, what liquid biopsy is. And so here's a definition that um, I got from the National Cancer Institute from the, from, uh, the cancer.gov uh, website. I'm not gonna read it to you, but um, let me uh, give you some of the highlights of the definition provided by the NCI. So it is liquid biopsy is a test done on blood samples to look for cancer cells or pieces of DNA shed by tumor cells. And it allows for multiple sample collection over time and helps doctor understand what kind of molecular changes are taking place in the tumor. One thing that the uh, NCI definition did not emphasize is that it is much, it's a much less invasive test compared to tissue biopsy and therefore actually allows you know, the uh, multiple sampling collection over time. Um, before I move on, I would like to give you a little bit of uh, uh, the scientific terminologies that we use uh, in liquid biopsy research. Uh, the cancer cells in the blood are also called circulating tumor cells or CTCs. The pieces of DNA from tumor cells that are shed in the blood are circulating tumor DNA or ctDNA. So liquid biopsy is, can be used for real-time detection of uh, tumor-derived materials in the blood. For example, here's a patient with cancer and you draw blood and in the blood, uh, if present, can, you can detect circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor cells. So if you spin down the blood, you can uh, find these cells uh, in the cellular fraction, which are the more, the more heavier uh, component uh, of blood. Are, you'll find the circulating tumor cells and in the acellular fraction, uh, like the plasma, is where you find you can find circulating tumor DNA. So CTCs and CTNA are shed by tumors into the blood. Uh, and here is an example, uh, an illustration uh, where a primary tumor can set, shed circulating tumor cells, either as single cells or clusters of cells also circulating tumor DNA, uh, but it also can shed other molecules. I'm not gonna discuss uh, these uh, other molecules like RNA proteins and metabolites that are also can be uh, shed by the primary tumor. One thing that's also important to note is that if the uh, patient has distant metastasis, for example, in the liver or the lungs, these also can contribute to uh, the presence of circulating tumor cells or circulating tumor DNA in the blood. So therefore the blood draw, uh, blood draw contains diverse tumor cells and products shed by multiple, uh, from multiple tumor sites. So I'm gonna focus tonight on circulating tumor DNA. And um, one characteristic, major characteristic of cDNA is that it carries genetic mutations um, information, including the mutation, from the tumor of origin. Here are different types of aberrations that can be found in a tumor. I'm not gonna go over them tonight, but let's say one example are point mutations. Um, point mutations are the change in the DNA sequence, you know, ATGC, and this can be found uh, in tumors. Uh, and these are really the basis of how we can detect circulating tumor DNA and how we can quantify them by looking for these mutations in the blood. 
However, cDNA molecule is like a needle in a haystack. So it's the overwhelming amount of DNA in the plasma or in the cell-free part of the, of the blood comes from dying blood cells. So they're normal, just normal DNAs. And the total DNA floating in the blood, uh, which we call cell-free DNA, or the ones, the DNA that are outside the cells, is the overwhelming uh, amount of molecules that are present are coming in the blood are coming from this uh, normal, uh, from normal cells. So circulating tumor DNA is a rare subset of cell-free DNA. So it is really a major challenge to find this rare cDNA molecule in the blood. So it's like looking for Waldo in a sea of, you know, 500,000 to a million uh, people with wearing almost the same clothes. At least here you have, you know, people uh, wearing different attire. Uh, so you can actually easily find, not easily, but you can find Waldo eventually. But in terms of liquid biopsy, we have solved that problem. How do we find circulating tumor DNA? We use these two powerful techniques called polymerase chain reaction or PCR and next generation sequencing. So either or combination of both uh, to find this rare circulating tumor DNA in the blood. So how do we uh, detect circulating tumor DNA? So we isolate the DNA from plasma and the total amount, as I mentioned earlier, are cell-free DNA and only a minute fraction of this uh, DNA are circulating tumor DNA. Therefore, we have techniques that are either based on PCR or both, uh, or NGS or both. And these have different sensitivities, all the way from less sensitive to very, very sensitive uh, tests. And I'm going to discuss later on that uh, in patients who have advanced disease, like in metastatic, metastatic cancers, uh, there are the circulating tumor DNA fraction is a little bit higher, so less sensitive tests can be used. However, in non-metastatic and patients in non-malignant situations, we really need very sensitive tests. So here, for example, is CAP-seq, which can um, detect two to three copies of mutant cDNA molecule in background of one million normal copies. So very, very sensitive. So if you have a cDNA test, what are the readouts? So they're either a quant through quantitative analysis uh, or genomic analysis. For quantitative analysis, you're really looking at the levels of the cDNA. Whereas for genomic analysis, you're looking at the types of cDNA that are present in the blood. So these are represented by the different colors of DNA fragments here. So uh, I'm gonna talk tonight about the applications of cDNA analysis in cancer management. So here's an illustration of a patient uh, with uh, cancer and uh, the levels of cDNA over the course of the patient's clinical history, including you know, the treatment the patient received. So I will talk about examples in the particular uh, settings where we can use cDNA to hopefully improve patient outcomes. One example is that cDNA can be used for prognostication. So it can be used for prediction of disease recurrence or survival. So here's a figure that I got from probably one of the earliest uh, high profile paper on circulating tumor DNA, which was published 
in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, showing that patients with high levels of CTDNA or the highest level of CTDNA have the poorest survival compared to other patients who have, these are breast cancer patients who have less, uh, uh, who have lower levels of CTNA in their blood. Increased levels of CTNA are associated with poor survival. Another example, which I will give to you is that uh, this is really a part of my work in breast cancer is that it can, CTNA can be used to monitor response uh, to treatment. So I work in this context of uh, ISPY2 trial in a neoadjuvant setting, which is the treatment given before surgery. And you have here a model or a cartoon model of a CTNA levels over time, which showing a decrease amount, decreasing amount of CTDNA during neoadjuvant therapy. But this is really just based on a model that, you know, or the observations that most tumors, uh, especially those who respond, decrease in volume over time. And, but actually, if we look at the patient by patient in term uh, response of ctDNA, we will see uh, different, we have seen different kinds of our heterogeneity of the patterns. So in this study, we collect uh, a blood uh, to do ctDNA analysis at baseline, three weeks after initiation of therapy, 12 weeks uh, after this uh, block of treatment and after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So here's are the different types of patterns that we saw in patients. So uh, the x axis, uh, the y axis are the levels of the ctDNA and the x axis is over time. And we saw that patients, some patients are just negative all throughout. Some patients clear their ctDNA early, others much later, and some don't clear at all. And when we look at their survival, patients who do not clear their ctDNA after treatment have an increased likelihood of recurrence or death compared to those patients who clear their ctDNA who, who are just negative all throughout. So I think it's a very interesting result. Here I got a um, 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 illustration from one of these blogs uh, online, and it's titled How Liquid Biopsies Could Help Monitor Cancer Treatment. Here's a uh, illustration of cells, uh, circulating tumor cells, I suppose, in the blood vessels, and the blue dots here are the uh, drugs that uh, are administered to the patient. And you can see that here it shows that some of these cells die, and one cell here uh, is resistant and it could shed its DNA into blood and could be picked up by liquid biopsy. And the clinician says, we've found some mutation in the cDNA. Well, you know, cDNA itself is the mutation. Uh, so the treatment hasn't been entirely successful, but we know which one will be. So this is really the goal. You know, it's, we are still in our early days, but we, the goal is to find uh, the circulating tumor DNA, a particular type of circulating tumor DNA, where we can pair it with a drug that could be effective to that type of mutation. So here's a much more scientific uh, illustration showing a, a lung cancer patient uh, across time and the levels of ctDNA and appearance of other uh, ctDNAs uh, during the disease course. And for example, here, a, uh, a, a CDNA colored green, a type of mutation, 
what if it were effect uh, if a drug uh, X could be effective for this type of mutation, then it could result into a response. And unfortunately, however, that you know most of the time patients do recur. So we need to find uh, drugs that could uh, be effective on these different types of combinations of mutations. Um, CDNA analysis, however, could be very limited. Uh, and this is because uh, um, cDNA itself is just ctDNA. It's, I'm sorry, it's based, it's just really DNA. So other components of, uh, of, the, of cancer, like for example, a solid tissue, uh, we can actually test for DNA, RNA, proteins, and metabolites, but for circulating tumor DNA, it's just DNA. And that's really the nature of the test. It, it can also be very expensive uh, compared here to tissue testing, uh, liquid biopsy. It's actually very similar if we use next generation sequencing. And it could run from four hundreds to over a thousand for each test. So that's something that and needs to be also addressed to, for it to be accessible to many patients. So I think this is really a very exciting field or exciting tool. Uh, liquid biopsy is uh, uh, particularly cDNA testing can aid in prognostication. It can, for, uh, for example, it can use for prediction of patient outcome, the patient survival. It can be used for monitoring of response and guiding treatment. And what I didn't discuss today is that it's also being examined or being investigated for early detection in people without cancer. So however, this also is very early and you know, as I discussed earlier, that you know, the levels of ctDNA is very, very low in patients with non-malignant disease. So that's a challenge also for this field. Let me end with this, uh, slide showing that you know, or you know with the idea that this can be a potential you know though this technology could potentially revolutionize care and management of patients especially if we combine it with other established uh, medical uh, tools that has been proven to improve patient outcomes including imaging which is the next topic and with that i would like to thank Hope uh, Rugo, who Dr. Hope Rugo invited me to talk today, who's also my mentor, my other mentor, Laura Van Peer, uh, and Amy Delson is a patient advocate and a patient uh, and patients and their families who volunteered in the clinical studies that I've been working on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. That was really interesting. And I think the ability to not just look for cells, but as uh, DNA in the blood, I think will help us in treating both early stage and uh, advanced breast cancer as well as other cancers. And right now we're already applying this to try and see if we can change therapies to improve outcome, but it's still very much a research question. And I think that you're going to hear from the next two speakers, some things that are actually in the clinical setting outside of research, as well as research techniques. Uh, but I will caution that cell-free DNA right now is still a research tool that we're exploring to see how best to apply it to uh, manage treatment. So uh, without further ado, we're and keep putting your questions into Q&A because we'll have time to talk about them. Uh, we're going to go on to Dr. Courtney Longheath, who's I'm really excited to work with on various novel imaging techniques, and will talk to us about that now. Great, thank you so much for that introduction. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. 
So hi, everybody. I'm Courtney Lon Heath. I'm a nuclear radiologist and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Radiology here at UCSF. I'm going to talk about some of the exciting technologies in nuclear medicine and molecular imaging uh, that are being developed to help us find and evaluate cancer in the body. So this is one of several areas of novel imaging techniques that, uh, and it's the area that I'm really passionate about. Um, basically, it's going to let us, this kind of new kind of imaging technique uh, lets us ask all kinds of different different um, questions about how this disease cancer works. So one of my main areas is breast cancer. So, you know, it's impossible to cover this whole topic in one talk. So a lot of my examples and stuff, a lot of this is going to be framed around breast cancer, but there are plenty of applications to other um, types of cancer as well. And I'll, I'm going to talk about those as we go. All right. Uh, I have no conflicts of interest. Now, first of all, I just want to clarify something. I did say that I'm a nuclear radiologist, and I just want to explain what that means. It's something not a lot of people necessarily have heard of. So a nuclear radiologist is a radiologist as well as a nuclear medicine physician. So they're board certified in both specialties. It generally means after four years of medical school, they've done a five-year radiology residency and a one-year nuclear medicine fellowship. Now, both radiology and nuclear medicine obviously involve medical imaging. Uh, radiology gives us important information about the structure of the body, okay, like, right, like anatomy, the size of things, and that includes things like mammograms, ultrasound, MRI. Meanwhile, nuclear medicine or molecular imaging is primarily interested in information about function rather than structure. What kind of cells are we dealing with? Do they have a certain kind of receptor on their surface, like maybe the estrogen receptor? How are they working? Examples of nuclear imaging include molecular breast imaging, lymphocentigraphy, and PET. And these are some of the examples I want to go over with you today. So again, using that example of breast cancer, molecular imaging gives us tools for looking at tumor in the breast itself, looking for lymph nodes near the breast to plan for surgery, and looking for metastatic disease in the whole body, that is, tumor that has spread outside the breast. So let's start with the breast itself, okay? So these are four mammograms in four different patients. And I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say that they look very different from each other, right? But actually, these are all normal mammograms. So what's different about them is how dense they are. And the one on the far left is not dense at all. And the one on the far right is extremely dense. Now, if I took a little fake image of a tumor, just sort of a hypothetical tumor, and I tried to hide it in each of those breast images, well, it's not going to be too hard to find in a breast that's not dense. So this is that fake tumor there, very easy to see. But as we start to look at denser and denser breasts, when we get to the densest of all, we, we really can't see it. And so this points to a real challenge of finding cancer in a dense breast. This is one of the ways that MRI has been really helpful. It's a different way of looking at the breast. It gives us different information from a mammogram and is especially helpful in dense breasts. Molecular imaging also has ways of looking at tumor in the breast. So this is an example here where you can see a hotspot here, tumor in the breast that's totally hidden on the mammogram. So as you can see in this image, the setup in molecular imaging can be pretty similar to the setup of regular imaging. This is the setup of a mammogram here on the right, a normal mammogram. And this is the setup of a positron emission mammogram, which is the nuclear medicine version of that. Um, nice thing about this that people say is the compression is a lot less than a regular mammogram. So at least there's that. Here's another type of molecular imaging that's set up like a mammogram. And here, this is yet another type of imaging, again, just looking at the breast, that's set up more like a breast MRI. For breast MRI, you actually lie on your stomach, 
and the breast is imaged that way. And this is a similar kind of setup where you lie on your stomach and the breast is imaged that way. This is actually the type of setup that we have at UCSF. But so far, most of these breast-only technologies are have pretty niche use cases and are still kind of in the research setting at this point. So kind of stay tuned on that front. But a much more mainstream application is surgical planning. So once a tumor is diagnosed uh, as, let's say, a breast tumor and it's diagnosed as breast cancer, a lot of patients are able to have the tumor surgically removed. When surgery is done, however, in, in breast cancer and in other uh, certain other cancers like melanoma, it's very important to check and make sure before you take the tumor out that the tumor hasn't spread outside of that local area. So this is an anatomical illustration of the breast and those little green ovals you can see here are uh, in the armpit are called lymph nodes. And the lymphatic system, of course, is part of your immune system. It's constantly filtering and draining all the tissues around it. And lymph nodes help catch harmful substances in the body that have gotten out into the lymphatic system, like cancer. They're kind of heroic in that way, I would say. So now let's imagine, let's pretend like this yellow star here in the breast is a tumor, okay? Now there are different lymph nodes that different, drain all different parts of the body. And actually it kind of varies from person to person. And so for the breast, the draining node is pretty much always in the armpit. But I mean, look at all these green nodes. This is an underrepresentation of how many lymph nodes are in the armpit. And so there are tons. So which one specifically, let's just say hypothetically for this particular patient, that this blue lymph node is the first stop for the lymphatic fluid that's coming from the breast. So if a tumor cell is able to escape into the lymphatic system, the first thing it's going to encounter is this lymph node. And if the immune system is not able to contain it at that point, the tumor cells can then spread from there to the next lymph node down the chain and the next lymph node down the chain and so on, right? So that first line of defense, actually, that first lymph node draining the breast is actually very special and it's very important. It's called the sentinel lymph node. And it sort of watches over the breast tissue like a sentinel. And it will sort of be the first to know when that breast tumor has spread. Now, when the breast tumor is taken out at surgery, the surgeon will also, also often take out that little sentinel lymph node. It gets examined under a microscope. And if there's no cancer in that node, it turns out there's a greater than 95% chance that there is no cancer in any of the other nodes either. So I'll take those odds. Uh, if there is cancer in the sentinel node, then more lymph nodes need to be removed and checked as well. So it all really hinges on the status of that sentinel node. But there's just one problem. See all those green ovals that we talked about as being lymph nodes. Well, again, it varies from person to person. How do we know which one is going to be the sentinel node in this case? You can't just, you can't tell by looking at it. So molecular imaging has a solution. So what we do is we inject a very trace amount of a radioactive substance into the breast, either near the tumor or near the nipple. And that substance is going to get filtered by the lymphatic system. And guess what its first stop is going to be? That sentinel lymph node. And so once the patient's in surgery, then the surgeon can use actually a special probe that can detect that little bit of radiation in the sentinel node. So they can easily take it out via a much smaller skin incision than if they'd had to search blindly for that node. Now, there are some cases where we might actually want to use a scanner to take pictures of where that node is before the patient goes to surgery, especially if a patient has already had some nodes in that armpit removed before. 
in order to plan. And this kind of imaging, we, we call it lymphocentigraphy. It's done again, like I said, in both breast cancer and melanoma to help with surgical planning. I'm gonna show you some quick example images. These ones are kind of these, uh, is like a slice, a cross section through the chest like this. So here's the first patient. There's this yellow spot here. That's a hot spot. That's the site in the breast where the radioactive agent was injected. And this yellow hot spot in the no, uh, in the armpit here is the sentinel node. So we we already I already said usually the breast uh, the sentinel node is in the armpit, and that's totally straightforward. But it's not always straightforward. This is a patient who previously had all the nodes in the armpit on that side surgically removed, and we can see the hot spot here where we injected the tracer in the breast, the sentinel node actually ended up being in the total opposite side on the other armpit. So this was very unusual. And this imaging really helped the surgeon know where she should plan to look for that sentinel node during surgery. So the scanner that takes these pictures is called a SPECT scanner. That trace amount of radioactivity that I mentioned can get picked up by a detector called a gamma camera. And over time, it makes images like this, which is called planar imaging. And if it, instead of kind of letting the camera sit there and gather images, we make it rotate around the body like this, we can actually take a three-dimensional picture of the body. And that's where we get these, uh, these cross-sectional views through the body, which can be very powerful. So that's how we look for lymph nodes near the breast in molecular imaging. But now the real power of where molecular imaging really shines and where the real innovations are happening right now is in looking at the whole body, trying to find metastatic disease or tumor that has spread outside the breast. So here's an example of a normal PET scan. And here's a scan with, unfortunately, a lot of metastatic disease. So how do these pictures work? So to start with, we inject something called a radio tracer, which is going to help us see if there are tumors anywhere in the body. So the most common radio tracer is actually just a type of sugar, it turns out. We use sugar actually because most kinds of tumor cells actually use a lot of sugar and we want to kind of catch them in the act. So we could just inject plain old sugar water, but the problem there is that once we injected it, we would have no way of knowing where the sugar went, right? Once it's in the body. So if only there was some way we could peek inside the body and actually see where the sugar went, we would actually know where all the tumors are. So what we do is we attach a tiny radioactive atom to the sugar. Then when we inject the sugar, we can actually see where all the sugar goes because we can take a picture of it using a PET scanner. And like I mentioned, the sugar tends to collect where there are tumor cells. So here's what a PET scanner looks like. Some of you may be familiar with it. It has a sort of donut hole that you lay down inside of, and the PET camera detect detects the very small amount of radiation that's coming from the body and is able to generate whole body images like this where all the sugar went. But the real power of this kind of imaging comes when you join two things together, and that is a CT that shows us where the different tissues are in the body and the PET that shows us what's actually happening in those tissues if that makes sense. And that gives us the so-called PET CT. Here's an example of what PET can do. So I'm going to show you a scan in a patient who was just diagnosed with breast cancer. The images are going to be a side view. So sort of like this orientation. So this is the, this is the CT scan. This is the spinal column. The white squares down here are the spinal column. This scan was normal. In other words, there was no metastatic disease that was found, no tumor outside the breast. However, the PET scan that was done at the same time showed, unfortunately, extensive tumor in lots of bones, including the spine, the breastbone, and the upper legs. So we're able to actually see a lot of things that regular imaging can't show us. 
I'm going to show you one more example. This time I'm just going to show you a little bit of the lower back, like the area in this white box here. So before starting chemo, this next patient got a CT scan and it showed a little tumor in one of the vertebral bodies in the spine. And sure enough, on PET, there was a hotspot indicating this was an active bone metastasis. Now, after chemo, the patient got imaged again and the CT had not changed at all. But on the PET, it actually almost disappeared. So this let us know that there was probably a response to treatment here. And we may not have actually known that if we had only gotten the CT scan. So it gave us information that was complementary to and kind of above and beyond what we were getting on the CT scan. In fact, some of the colleagues at my institution recently did an analysis where they compared regular imaging to molecular imaging for looking at the whole body in breast cancer patients. They found that regular imaging had more false positives than PET. Patients had a longer time until they were able to start their therapy. And even though PET is more expensive up front, because there were fewer false positives and shorter time to therapy start in the PET group, it actually saved money in the long run. And then actually, it turns out we don't have to confine ourselves to looking at where sugar is going in the body. We can actually use PET imaging to look at a lot of different things in the body. One interesting thing we can do is instead of sugar, we can use estrogen and we can actually take pictures of where estrogen is going in the body. So some kinds of breast cancer, as many of you probably know, for example, um, some types of lobular breast cancer in particular are very hard to see on sugar PET, but uh, can be really well seen on estrogen PET because many breast cancers have estrogen receptors. So the estrogen will go to where the estrogen receptors are. So here's a, an example of that. This is a sugar pet, uh, breast cancer patient. We did not see much on this pet. It was almost a normal scan, but we were able to see the very extensive uh, disease in the bones here much better on the estrogen pet. So this estrogen pet radio tracer is uh, quite new. Many of these new radio tracers are, are seriously new. This is uh, the brand name here is Syriana, but it was just FDA approved at the end of 2020. And we started using it at UCSF in early 2021. So it's just over a year old here at this point. We can also use PET technology to look for other receptors. Um, the other big receptor we talk about a lot in breast cancer is HER2, and there's a HER2 PET. So here's an example of a 66-year-old woman with metastatic right breast cancer. And her breast cancer the, the, on the biopsy was positive for estrogen and progesterone receptors and negative for HER2 receptors. And the reason that that's important is knowing those receptors is because that kind of guides what kind of treatment the patient is going to need. Um, but this patient, the same patient uh, with the HER2 negative disease got a PET scan that actually found a lot of HER2 positive tumors in the body. So yes, the primary tumor did not have HER2 receptors, but a number of the, met of the metastases did, which actually in this particular case led the clinicians to change her treatment or to actually add a HER2 targeted treatment to her existing treatment regimen. So an interesting impact on management there. It's totally not confined to breast cancer. I don't want to be breast cancer biased. Um, some of the other areas where just in the last five years, and in some cases, maybe even two-ish years, there have been new developments are in PET imaging for neuroendocrine tumors and for prostate cancer. And that brings me, part of why this is so exciting is not just being able to see disease better, follow cancer better, find it better, find it earlier, is also, it has implications for treatment. So there's this concept of theranostics, okay? If you haven't heard this term yet, theranostics, 
It is not, this is not the last time you're going to hear it, I guarantee you. So it's this idea of using the same compound for both diagnostic imaging and therapeutic purposes, okay? And that that's sort of a whole nother talk, but long story short, in these two cancers, both neuroendocrine tumors and prostate cancer, these are PET images, but it turns out if you use these same radio tracers with just a slightly different kind of radiation, uh, you can actually turn this into uh, a, an effective therapy for this disease. And this PET will tell you where that therapy is going to go, which is really uh, neat. So stay tuned for that word, theranostics. I'm sure you'll hear it again. Um, not only that, but new tracers are coming out all the time that promise better imaging and possibly therapy of many different cancers. I don't know if you can see the tiny, uh, the tiny, tiny writing here, but uh, this is a single new tracer called FAPI that uh, we, we, there are images, images very well in breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal, pancreatic, esophageal, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Um, and this is something that at, at UCSF, we're very excited about um, innovating new types of tracers and new applications for them. So I hope I've shown you, I know this has been a whirlwind tour, but I hope I've been able to show you how molecular imaging can be used in all kinds of ways to improve how we see and treat cancer, and that the future is really bright for more precision, targeted imaging, and even therapy of this disease. So I want to also extend a special thank you to patients who participate in imaging research studies. Uh, if there are any of you on the call, I, I hope you know we could not improve the care of our cancer patients without volunteers like you. Thank you so much uh, for your help. And thanks to everybody for your attention and to the organizers for having me. Thanks so much, Courtney. That was really fabulous and uh, love the pictures. I think it's really so interesting to think about how we're going to be incorporating these new imaging uh, techniques. And also, I think, exciting to see that some of them already have regulatory approval. So without further ado, we're going to move into maybe the most science fiction-like part of our evening, uh, the idea of CAR T-cells. I remember hearing about them and thinking, it was just really so remarkable that we could make this kind of progress in hematologic malignancies, an area that I spent time working in in the 90s. Uh, so we're excited to have Rahul Banerjee here, who's uh, been working in this area to talk about this very cool and a little bit uh, difficult to understand area. And I think he's going to make it all very clear. Thank you, Hope, for that kind introduction. I will do my best. I think this will also be a nice segue from a, you know, a powerful diagnostic modality to a powerful theranostic modality to now a therapeutic modality that we'll speak about. Uh, so again, my name is Rahul Banerjee. Uh, here are my financial disclosures, and I also would like to acknowledge Dr. Nina Shah from UCSF and the other panelists today for reviewing these slides. So the next 15 minutes, I'd like to talk about three things. Uh, one, just to get us all on the same page about T-cells and CAR T-cells. Two, I'd like to talk about CAR-T therapy and where we stand today, March 29th, 2022, in terms of where the field is. And three, where the field is headed with CAR therapy. You'll notice that it's not a typo. The future of this therapy may not just be T-cells and CAR T-cells, but CARs in general. So first, let's get into some basic immunology. Uh, for those of you who have watched the movie Taken, the T and T-cells do not stand for Taken, but I think the analogy here is a good one. The T-cells are a type of white blood cell that have a very particular set of skills that they have acquired over a long career. T-cells come in two flavors, CD8 and CD4. CD8 T-cells are also called cytotoxic or killer T-cells. They go door to door, recognizing cells that may be abnormal in some way, for example, infected by cancer or by a virus, for example, as shown here, and they destroy them. 
We also have CD4 T cells, also known as helper T cells, that, as you can see here, help to coordinate the immune response by working with other types of immune cells, for example, macrophages and B cells. It's worth noting that T cells, you know, I, the, the slide in the previous slide mentioned T cells and viruses. T cells do do a good job of fighting off cancers. You know, in fact, we've learned that when T cells are depleted for because of HIV or because of other medications, those patients are at higher risk of cancer as a result. So T cells clearly do play a role in our response against cancers, but they don't always work. That Church and Destroy mission I, I mentioned earlier doesn't always work the way that it should against cancer. And to just give a metaphor here that might help explain some of these very complex immunological questions. Um, I'll give the metaphor instead of being a T cell, you know, looking for cancer inside the blood vessel, think of yourself as a T cell trying to identify this fugitive cancer cell hiding somewhere in San Francisco. A lot of issues can come up. T cells can have difficulties with trafficking. So the analogy here would be the neighborhood where we know the cancer cells hiding off the grid, not accessible from any highway or road. You can have a hostile tumor microenvironment, and a metaphor for that is an accurate one, where the street leading up to the house is booby-trapped, where T cells on their way to try to get to the tumor cell actually die off and don't make it there. Tumors can often lack MHC expression. MHC is basically how a T cell knows that a cell is a cell. So for us, it's how we know that a house is a house. We see a roof, we see windows, we see doors. A home that's completely camouflaged is invisible to us the way that a cell lacking MHC is invisible to a T cell. Tumor cells are distorted version of our own cells. So a lot of times tumors express self-antigens that the T cell has been trained in not to recognize or cannot recognize, making the cancer cell indistinguishable from its normal colleagues. And then T cells can sometimes undergo what we call tolerance where they learn to almost stand down. They don't complete their mission. And so the analogy here would be the cancer cell just as the T cell recognizes that something's wrong and that's the cancer cell that it was trained to recognize and get rid of, the cancer cell flips the script and actually arrests the T cell. To overcome some of the limitations, CAR T cell therapy has been developed. So just to talk to the basics of CAR, CAR is a chimeric antigen receptor. It's basically a bioengineered receptor that's inserted into the T cell. So three things can happen as a result. Um, as you can see here, for example, most CAR trials and products use actually a virus to actually inject this synthetic bioengineered receptor into the T cell. And you can program the receptor, the CAR, if you will, to recognize a self-antigen. I just mentioned that tumor cells often have these self-antigens that, that belong in normal cells. You can train the T cell, now the CAR T cell, to recognize them. You can program the CAR to allow the T cell to proliferate and grow rapidly as soon as it sees a tumor cell. And then I mentioned these kind of, you know, stepping down or stand down mechanisms where in real life our immune system is a complex network of pro-immunity uh, and anti-immunity signals to help prevent autoimmune diseases. When you program a CAR, you can program it to bypass all of the checks and balances, all the checkpoints and just let the CAR T cell go to town when it sees its target antigen. In terms of what this practically means for patients, there's kind of two loops that happen simultaneously. The loop on the left here is for the T cell and the loop on the right here is for the patient. So most T cells that we, most CAR T cell therapies that we have available now are autologous, meaning that the patient with cancer themselves donates their own T cells for this. So the T cells get collected from the patient, from their blood and delivered to the specialized lab. The lab then grows the T cells. So you have lots and lots of these T cells and then uses a technique, often viral infection, to actually turn the T cells into CAR T cells. 
And then lastly, the CAR T cells get tested, cleared, and returned from the lab back to the bedside where they can be infused into the patient. It's important to note that this process takes about a month or so, sometimes a bit quicker, sometimes a bit longer, but about a month. So for the patient during that time, the first step is the same, the loop on the right here, the patient undergoes what we call apheresis. That's where the actual normal T cells are collected from their blood. During that month time for the manufacturing of the CAR T cell therapy, some patients require what we call bridging chemotherapy. So not chemo to put them back into remission again, but just enough chemo to keep the cancer in check, almost as a bridge to four weeks from now when they can get the CAR T cells back. Once the CAR T cells are ready, all of our patients get something called LD chemotherapy, but that does it almost selectively depletes the remaining T cells inside the patient, almost creating a relative vacuum of T cells. So a couple of days later, when the CAR T cells come in, the body immediately embraces them as T cells and lets them do their business. In terms of side effects, all therapies come with side effects. CAR T therapy is no exception. The analogy for the big three side effects that I'm mentioning here is you can imagine it's almost like sepsis. Some of you may have heard the word sepsis before, which is when your body is so overwhelmed by an infection that the immune system itself becomes the problem. With CAR T therapy, you can imagine the T cells, the CAR T cells come in and all of a sudden they see the enemy everywhere. Some of the side effects that can develop, one of them is called cytokine release syndrome, which is high fevers, low blood pressures, just like sepsis, because your body is very inflamed very suddenly. That inflammation can also trigger chemicals that can cause confusion or difficulty speaking, something called neurotoxicity or ICANS. And then because a lot of times the cancers are in the bone marrow, all of that activity within the bone marrow for the T cells attacking the cancer cells can lead to low blood counts and infections. Patients often find this confusing when I talk with them, but on the one hand, CAR T cell therapy is strengthening the immune system, but only against the cancer. The rest of their immune system often is depleted by the CAR T cell therapy, and they are at higher risk of infections down the line, and we have to keep a very close eye on them. In terms of whether CAR T cell, CAR -T -cell therapy works or not, in a lot of cancers that we've studied, it works really well. So the caveat I'll add here that primarily CAR T cell therapy has been studied in blood cancers, for example, leukemia, lymphoma, or myeloma, so cancers of the bloodstream or the bone marrow. And in patients who have quote unquote chemorefractory cancer, where the, the cancer is growing despite the best chemotherapy, CAR T cell therapy has shown some very impressive responses. I've given one example of a study here, the Zuma 7 study, that took patients whose lymphoma had come back very rapidly and randomized them. So they got randomly assigned to either get CAR T therapy or get the standard care, which in this case would be a bone marrow transplant. The graph on the right here is very confusing with the Kaplan Meier curve. But in brief, it shows the percent of patients for whom the cancer stays in remission on the y-axis and on the x-axis number of months. I want to direct your attention to the plateau here on the right, where basically what this means is that about 40% of patients who got CAR-T therapy for resistant cancers like this were in a long-term remission where the, the, the lymphoma very rarely came back. Versus the red line, which is the bone marrow transplant, only about 15 to 20% of patients hit that milestone. So in essence, you're more than doubling the effective cure rate for these patients, which is very, very remarkable and very exciting. As a result of studies like this, we now have six FDA-approved CAR T cell therapies. So not just therapies on trial, but can actually be given to any sort of patient based on a discussion between the doctor, the patient insurance company, and so forth. As you can see here, the first CAR T therapy was approved by the FDA back in 2017. The most recent one, Carvicti, was approved all of a month ago. 
four of these CAR T therapies attack uh, le leukemias and lymphomas, and two of them attack multiple myeloma. Unfortunately, on this list, you know, breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, a lot of the more common malignancies that our patients face are not listed here. So the big question for our field is, well, how do we get these advances, these exciting advances to work for solid tumors as well? For example, other types of cancer. So uh, the biggest thing we're working on is figuring out those unique quote-unquote self-antigens that can be targeted safely and efficaciously in those cancers. So an example of a trial that's ongoing here at UCSF right now actually is a trial of this particular protein called PSNA in patients with prostate cancer that's running right now here. A mission idea of booby trapping, which happens a lot in solid tumors, where for the T cell to get into the solid tumor, there's just a very hostile environment there, and a lot of the T cells just die. And so this is a, admittedly a pun, the idea of an armored car, but really the principle is correct, that the CAR T cell comes with armoring that helps it to withstand that microenvironment. And then we know a lot about T cells, but it may be that other types of immune cells, for example, macrophages, can better get into solid tumors. So studies of CAR macrophages are early, but ongoing, and I'm excited to see where that field uh, moves. One question that patients often ask me is, well, if, the, if you engineer the T cells or CAR T cells that just recognize one protein, why can't the tumor just shut off that protein? And that indeed is a problem and unfortunately is a form or a cause of relapse in some of our patients. So a lot of other exciting strategies are being developed to kind of get around that. One example is you can target multiple antigens at once on the CAR T cell, because it's very difficult for a tumor cell to, to shift so many moving parts at once. Or some research is going into the idea of an adapter molecule where you make the CAR T cells, but you train the CAR T cells to recognize uh, intermediary protein that in turn uh, binds to the cancer cell. And the idea there is that CAR T cells are very difficult to manufacture. It takes a month and a lot of money, but you can take this adapter molecule and constantly tweak it in real life based on what you know about the patient and their current malignancy. And then, so if we can do all that, how do we make CAR T therapy uh, curative? I already mentioned earlier from the Zuma 7 study that for some patients, it already is curative. Some patients are able to be durably put into remission and essentially cured of lymphoma with CAR T therapy. The hard part is we just don't know in advance who those patients are. And so a lot of research is underway in all kinds of cancer to make CAR T therapy last for longer. And so some bioengineering techniques or some strategies to pick and choose which T cells get the CAR are all under investigation. Some of you may have read this New York Times article uh, about two months ago now in February that was really interesting that talked about uh, patients who are now a decade out of CAR T therapy for uh, CLL, for type of lymphoma, leukemia, uh, kind of a mix in between, who will remain in remission now. And we're trying to learn from those patients, what is it about their CAR T cells that are making them be so durably in remission decades out? That's what we want to get for all of our patients. That's how to make it curative. How do we make it practical? So I mentioned briefly the specialized toxicities, for example, CRS, which can mimic sepsis and this new type of neurotoxicity or confusion that most doctors are not at all familiar with, most nurses and pharmacists are not at all familiar with. So, you know, currently in Northern California, only UCSF, Stanford, and UC Davis are even able to offer this therapy. We're hoping that in future years, improving the safety profile of CAR-T therapy can make it be used more broadly by more patients you know, across the U.S., regardless of whether they're an academic center or not. I mentioned the long manufacturing times. A month may not seem like a lot, but for a patient whose cancer has come back, a month is a very long time. A lot of research is ongoing into so-called allogeneic or donor-derived CAR T cells that are, that are 
collected from a healthy donor and pre-manufactured so they can be used quote unquote off the shelf. That when a patient needs CAR T therapy, you don't need to collect their T cells. You don't need to wait a month. You can just grab quote unquote off the shelf T cells and go. Speaking of shelf, this is obviously a comic here, but I use it to show that whereas other medications might cost $20, $7, CAR T therapy generally costs about $400,000 or plus. And that's just for the therapy itself and not any of the care that comes alongside of it. And so obviously a big challenge for the field, one that I don't have any easy answers for, is how do we make CAR T therapy affordable, not just for patients here in the US, but globally. And so with that in mind, uh, with those lessons in mind, I'll close. My closing thoughts here is one, just the elegance of the CAR T cell therapy. You can imagine on the one hand, we're using the best 21st century bioengineering, but on the, on the other hand, instead of using some new chemotherapy or some new synthesized chemical, we're actually using bioengineering to harness the full power of the immune system, which you know the human species has had for millennia. And so it's really elegant in a way that it's both a very foreign concept, but also a very innately known concept to our immune system and to who we are. I've mentioned a lot of ex exciting advances in the last couple of slides, but it's worth noting that I really am excited about the best that's yet to come. This is an example here at UCSF, literally in the last six months, I took a million dollar philanthropic gift to sponsor this new CAR T therapy initiative that we'll be launching here in San Francisco with the idea of allowing us to develop better CAR T, CAR T cell therapies for more types of cancer, but also to develop the CAR, T, the CAR T cells here in San Francisco physically, actually near our Mission Bay campus. So, you know, stay tuned. You know, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm excited that all the slides I've mentioned within a year from now will be completely out of date and I could not be happier about that. With that, I will close. I'd like to thank again the panelists for uh, inviting me to speak today and I'm uh, excited to answer you guys' questions. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Rahul. That was so fascinating. And just for the audience, a couple of questions quickly to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll have everybody else come back on, Mark and Courtney. Um, one is that, you know, you mentioned you insert this chimeric antigen. So that's done in the laboratory. How do you get the blood out of what's, how is it done physically for patients to understand you, how do you get the blood out? How long does it take to process it? How do you give it back? And then if it's not currently being done at UCSF, where is it being done? Well, excellent, excellent questions. So in terms of what phoresis actually entails, the collection of the T cells from the patient themselves, it generally takes about a couple of hours and it's similar in some ways to dialysis. It's not permanent and it's not dialysis in and of itself. With dialysis, the idea is that you're filtering the blood. With dialysis, you're filtering it out of toxins that the kidneys would normally clear. Here, for, for T cell collection, you're filtering out the T cells. You're not throwing away the T cells, obviously. You're keeping them to turn into CAR T cell therapy. But essentially, for a couple hours, patients are put on a machine that collects their blood, filters out the T cells, and delivers the rest of the blood back to them. In terms of what's happening now with those T cells, it has to be a very, very specialized lab to be able to do this properly. There's a lot of regulations that are properly are in place, both by the FDA and by a number of other organizations. So at the current time, uh, the, the slide that I mentioned with the six approved CAR T cell therapies, they actually moved to a special lab run by that particular pharmaceutical company that has been doing this, has gotten FDA clearance to actually turn T cells into CAR T cells. When we develop our own quote unquote GMP facility, which as I mentioned, will be happening thanks to that philanthropic gift, we'll be establishing that level of a very uh, sophisticated lab here in San Francisco. So basically you need to send it off the cells after you freeze them, but how do you, 
uh, determine how do you target the specific cancer? Are you sending the uh, sending off a piece of that cancer too? Um, and how would that translate into other cancers? Agreed. So I would love to see a world where all three of the topics that we discussed today, including ctDNA uh, that Mark brought up earlier, kind of get merged here to get a sense of what antigens are actually expressed by the tumor and what aren't. As of right now, we have a very limited repertoire of CAR-T options that we have in terms of what they target. Uh, two proteins that currently are found only on certain kinds of blood cancers. And we've kind of pre-created the CAR so that we already have developed the CAR, the receptor to target those particular proteins. There will come a time, which I'm excited about, where exactly as, uh, as, as the, the question asker or Dr. Rugo alluded to, that you can probably look at the patient's own you know, cancer DNA report and see what proteins that cancer cells are expressing and develop adapter proteins or CAR T cells that specifically adapt and, 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 and bind to those particular antigens, those particular proteins, we're not there yet. So as of right now, when we know that someone has lymphoma or has myeloma, and we know that they have that kind of cancer, we know that that cancer expresses that particular protein that we've already designed a CAR for, and so they're able to get that therapy. For our patients, you know, for example, the, the trial I mentioned of prostate cancer, not all prostate cancer, not all patients with prostate cancer will have the cancer cells expressing that particular protein PSMA. So in that case, we would check for it ahead of time, but we're not at a point yet where we can totally make quote unquote designer T cells or bespoken CAR T cells. But again, I, I don't think it's 20 years from now. I don't even think it's 10 years from now. My hope is with five to 10 years from now, we'll be at that point. That's really cool. And we'll come back to you with some more questions in a minute. But uh, Courtney, uh, one of the, a lot of the questions that have come up is about just general scanning. So one of the questions is what kind of uh, breast cancer patients get PET scans and should breast cancer survivors request CT PET scans? Well, thanks. That's an, that's an interesting question. And yeah, I didn't have time to really talk about that in the, uh, in the talk, but basically long story short, um, it's not necessarily for everybody. Patients generally with um, where they have either a really big uh, tumor in the breast, or they have, you know, lymph nodes in the in the armpit, um, or they have metastatic disease, cancer that's spread outside the, the breast. Those are really the patients that should be getting um, PET CTs. Other patients, uh, it's probably overkill, and um, and definitely, you know, your if you uh, have an oncologist, your oncologist will be able to advise you really well about it. Thanks. And I'll add in some on that, which is that uh, PET CT scans come in two varieties. You can have a fused PET CT where the CT really doesn't give you as much detailed information as a diagnostic CT, or you can have a PET with a diagnostic CT that we have at UCSF, but a lot of places don't actually have. And one of the problems with getting PET scans is that we overestimate disease and underestimate potentially response. So uh, sometimes we see changes that really are inflammation and that leads you astray. Uh, we do not, we do uh, staging scans for patients, as Courtney mentioned, who have a lot of disease at the time of their diagnosis with early stage breast cancer, but we don't do them to follow breast cancer survivors. And that's a really important point. Turns out that doing scans to look for incurable disease doesn't help you to live any longer. On the other hand, if you have any symptoms that are at all concerning, scans should be done early that are focused on the area of concern. CT PET scans include radiation, and if you did them, how frequently would you do a scan? Let's say you did it once a year, you're just as likely to have development of disease in between your scans. 
And that's why we think screening for breast cancer is so important because that is a stage of breast cancer we can cure. Doing routine scans in a breast cancer survivor who has no disease is really exposing patients to undue risk with no benefit. So uh, let's talk a little bit about ctDNA, Mark. Um, and so one question that came up, which I think is a really interesting one, is can ctDNA tell us where the primary cancer site is when it detects cancer in a cancer-free patient? So if you sign cell-free DNA, can you know what cancer it comes from? That, that's a very good question. There's actually um, technology that was developed at Johns Hopkins. It was published in Science in 2018 this uh, technology called cancer seek. So this is not in real world situation. This is just in a study population, right? Uh, so what they did was they combined circulating tumor DNA and eight proteins that can be detected in the blood. So using those combination, the combination of circulating tumor DNA and the eight proteins, they were able to find which, you know, this among the population who were healthy, they found patients with cancer and based on the pattern of the ctDNA and the proteins that they found, they were able to localize what type of cancer there is. So it's very, very interesting. It's called cancer seek. Of course, it's still in, uh, uh, it needs further validation, but there is a potential to do that. And what kinds of cancers can be potentially monitored with liquid biopsies? Is this something that you would recommend as a routine way of uh, monitoring a patient who has early stage or metastatic disease? Uh, that's a really good question. So right now we are really at the mercy of the detection limit of the technology for the technology for uh, looking for the circulating tumor DNA. So it's very, it's more reliable. Uh, the test, the ctDNA testing is more reliable when there are higher levels of ctDNA. So uh, cancers uh, that shed C, uh, more ctna i think has better chances in terms of having very informative results compared to those who uh, compared to those other cancers that shed less for example in breast cancer we found actually that patients who are what we call triple negatives have higher levels of circulating tumor dna and compared to patients who are hormone receptor positive. So with even in, within ca same cancer type, there are heterogeneity in ctDNA levels that are being shed by tumors. So that has to be taken into account. But potentially is the more sensitive uh, our technology uh, becomes, then the, you know, it can be potentially be uh, used for all types of cancer. I will say that right now, uh, following patients in early stage disease with ctDNA is considered investigational mm -hmm. because we don't know that we have a way of accurately predicting who, who has cell-free DNA will actually recur or that changing treatment will change outcomes. So that's a topic for research studies. And there's a lot of interest in the metastatic setting to try and look for new mutations that might allow us to change treatment earlier. But again, the most recent study looking at this was not convincing that changing therapy early could really change outcomes. So we have a long way to go. Right now, where we use this technique as a routine test is to look for mutations in blood when we don't want to stick a needle into somebody with the associated pain and risk. 
in order to obtain tumor because we know that tumor changes over time and can develop new mutations and lose them. So using cell-free DNA for this technique is covered by insurance and is a routine test that we do in metastatic disease. Rahul, you have your hand up. I, I do. I just want to add one comment to this amazing discussion that's going on. Just in case no one has a first thought that I have, which is, well, why don't we just do CTDNA for everybody in America to see what's going on? Just as a word of caution from the blood cancer standpoint for what I treat, if you look at patients who are 70 or older, for example, and you ran CTDNA on them, probably about 10% of them, you would pick up genes that were mutated that are also mutated at cancers. The term for that is CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And the odds are probably 90% plus that they will never have cancer. They do not have cancer now. And so we're just kind of left scratching our head to be like, well, what do we do with this? So we're still unfolding it, but I think it's just a word of caution that this is everything we've talked about so far that other panelists have discussed is in the setting of someone with a known malignancy to figure out how to manage them best and how to keep an eye on them, not in healthy patients. That's great. Very, very good point. Thanks for saying that. Another question that came up about CAR T cells to you, Rahul, is uh, the, you, I know you mentioned the adverse events, uh, why do people have adverse events if it's the patient's own cells? And why are those specific events seen that you commented on? Maybe you could just run through them again. Yeah, it's a brilliant, a very astute question. I will say that um, there are studies ongoing of allogeneic CAR T cells, these off-the-shelf T cells that come from someone else, and they have their additional set of other side effects that I will not discuss for time reasons. But here, the big crux of it is, is, you know, the way that I would look at it is normally when your body gets an infection, there's kind of an on-ramp and an off-ramp where the, the bacteria or virus starts growing and growing and growing. Your immune system picks up on it and slowly kind of matches its tempo to match that of the pathogen of the bacteria or virus and then gets rid of it. Here, you can imagine the CAR T cells come in and, you know, literally within hours, they see cancer cells everywhere a vast amount of them that are hiding everywhere that the chemotherapy has not been able to touch. And so just that level, you know, we studies have shown that CAR T cells probably grow a hundred times faster than other T cells given the, and put in the same circumstances, just because they see their target everywhere. That level and that tempo of activation, I think is what's triggering the symptoms that we discuss where it's the, the immune system is so much on overdrive because it sees the cancer everywhere that the cytokines, the chemicals that are released, that's what causes the cytokine release syndrome or the high fevers. That's what causes the low blood pressure. That's what can cause confusion and low blood counts. So, you know, I, I think people have actually studied the idea of a kind of a gradual CAR T cell dosing. They just give a little bit of CAR T cells on day one, see what happens. If nothing, then give more on day two, more on day three. That fractionated approach might help with this. It's still very investigational. So again, I'm hoping a couple of years from now that everything I'm saying right now will be completely wrong. I could not be more excited about that. But as of right now, it's still a work in progress. So uh, then uh, another question just about um, imaging. Uh, I think, um, what are the diagnostic possibilities for pancreatic and ovarian cancer that are available now? And I guess it's really imaging and also uh, cell-free DNA. So I'm happy to speak to the, the imaging piece um, for pancreatic and ovarian. Um, regular, I've talked about sugar F, sugar PET, which is also called, called by a more formal name, FDG PET. Um, that's actually uh, for, especially for patients with so-called locally advanced or metastatic disease. Again, a great modality in, uh, for that disease in most cases. Um, but there is an exciting new uh, radio tracer that I just showed a quick slide of at the end of the talk um, that looks at 
what's called cancer associated fibroblasts. It's basically looking at basically, you know, they're like cancer cells. And then this, the cancer cells are in this, what, what they call the tumor microenvironment, which kind of are help provide the environment, a conducive environment for the cell to survive. And uh, this is a tracer that images those cells and it images ovarian and pancreatic cancer very well. That's still very much on the horizon, uh, however. And Mark, do you know um, of use in those cancers of cell-free DNA? Um, I would say for BRCA mutated cancers, uh, the they can test the blood for reversion of the mutation, right? So, for example, ovarian cancers or breast cancers that are BRCA mutated, they actually there are these are also early studies. Uh, where they look at uh, a non-mutant version of the BRCA gene in the blood. And this is going to be associated, this uh, is associated with resistance to BRCA-targeted uh, treatments. Uh, one of the questions that uh, came up was uh, testing for patients with BRCA2 genes for ovarian pancreatic cancer. I don't think that any of the things we've talked about this evening are specifically for screening for ovarian and pancreatic cancer, but one could conceive in the future of using cell-free DNA potentially to look for cancers in patients who are at very high risk. I don't, I know that there are some studies going on now and some work, as you mentioned, the cancer seek. I don't know if you know anything more about that, Mark. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good question. I'm not very uh, aware of the literature in pancreatic cancer, but, uh, you know, just the concept of being able to detect uh, mutations in the blood from, you know, that is uh, related to the pancreatic tumor, right, then that there is really a potential to do this. And as I mentioned earlier, for any type of cancer. And somebody asked about expanding beyond DNA. I know that people are looking at proteins and proteomics, but it's so massively complicated. Yeah, that's also a very good question. So there is actually a study that I'm involved with. It's in Hani Godarzi lab at UCSF. We're looking at onc-RNA. So these are small pieces of RNA that is highly uh, expressed by tumors, but, but not by normal cells. So they have, uh, Hani Godarzi uh, has used this to as a fingerprint for types of, uh, for certain types of cancers, but also to just to detect cancers. And also uh, have, he has shown that this uh, uh, can be used for prediction of survival as well. That's really helpful and uh, very interesting as well. I think that, um, you know, what we're going to do in the future there, I think there's tremendous possibilities, especially with potentially uh, more computers that will allow us yeah. to sift through all this information. Um, there, we just have a, a short teeny bit of time, three minutes left before we do our uh, summary closing with uh, Dr. Bronfield. But a uh, quick question for you, uh, Courtney, and then I'll have a question for you, Rahul, to close up. But uh, the, one of the questions was the state of the science on the risk benefit of screening normal women less than the age of 50 years for breast cancer and the various screening modalities for this group from a population perspective. Very difficult question. Very difficult question, age-old question, and it would be a really fun pro and con debate. Um, but, you know, suffice it to say, it's something that uh, we've thought about a lot uh, in my in my field. Um, what I would say is that evidence supports, you know, the benefit of annual screening mammography 
in women under 50, at least from 40 to, to 49, like starting at 40. Multiple models of different, as well as trials, have shown the greatest breast cancer-related mortality reduction and life years gain with annual screening starting when you reach 40 rather than 50. And in fact, you mentioned uh, that question, I think you mentioned normal risk um, women. And that's, you know, that's also a question. Should we only screen high risk women, you know, starting at 40 and maybe the normal risk women can start at 50. Um, that's one sort of type of what they call risk-based screening. It turns out that risk-based screening actually uh, would miss nearly a quarter of detectable, sorry, not a quarter, three quarters of detectable cancers in the 40 to 49 uh, risk group. In other words, most cancers that are detected in that age group are not in patients that have a particularly high risk at baseline. Um, so long story short, but you know, you're just getting the pro side. Now we need a con side and we need to kind of fight it out. But I guess that's for, that's a topic for another time. <laughs> That's uh, very helpful. And I think there's a lot of work going on. Laura Esman is running a huge project, multi-center project called the Wisdom Trial, where they're looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms, another complicated area to try and see um, if we can understand who's at higher risk that might have more screening earlier. So Rahul, just you have the last word here, the last minute, but there's a comment dreaming a little here in 50 years when your kids are oncologists. Do you think, although for me, it might be my grandchildren, would you think there is a chance that we would use liquid biopsies as a standard screening tool, modern imaging as a definitive locator, and CAR-T as a standard broad treatment cure for liquid and solid tumors? That, that is a million-dollar question. I love it. Yeah, my son is 14 months old and asleep, but uh, <laughs> he might be in that range at some point as well. Um, I, I would love for that to be the case. I think that the, the, three things at least would need to happen for that to be practical. I think one, we would need to know, uh, we, we, we would need to have the, the, the scalability to make these tests easily accessible. So make sure that everybody who could get ctDNA could, could get the imaging could, who could get CAR-T therapy could actually get it. Two, I think we would need to have a sense of, for CAR-T therapy in particular, talk about how to make the responses durable. Again, I will say that you know, for all our trials of CAR-T therapy, almost all of them were able to get a response in patients with most of our modern generation CAR therapies. We're just not able to get it to stick. That's what we're trying to figure out. So we have to figure out how to make our CAR-T CAR cells durable and stick around as almost surveillance forever for these patients. And three, we have to make it affordable. You know, I just the CAR-T cell therapy alone, I mentioned, costs, I said, about 400000 Most estimates, if you include you know, the cost of supportive care and the hospitalization and so forth approached a million dollars for CAR-T cell therapy. And so that obviously is not practical in and of itself. Will, you know, there be a way to have everyone get CAR-T cells just in case and then program a receptor molecule in real time when people get cancer? I don't know, but I think if we can figure out a way to do them, that's step one, but step two will be actually being able to pay for it. That being said, please don't paint me as a pessimist. I'm very optimistic. I'm hoping that it will take far less than 50 years to get there. We just have to make that we make sure we do it in a way that's actually scalable and equitable. Very exciting. I want to thank uh, you, uh, Courtney and Mark, for your excellent presentations and great Q&A session. And I'll hand over the podium, so to speak, to Sam Brownfield, who organized this uh, great series of uh, uh, meetings and presentations. Uh, with uh, uh, Shaken uh, Aurora that you heard from earlier. Thank you so much, Hope, and all the amazing uh, speakers tonight. 
Um, I loved listening and learned a lot um, through hearing all of your talks. So I just wanted to wrap us up for a, a few minutes here and thank you all for uh, joining for the past six weeks um, for this course. We definitely hope you learned uh, a bunch of stuff that was interesting to you about cancer. I wanted to uh, remind you of what the learning objectives for the whole course were, just so you can kind of rehash that journey that you've taken uh, through, throughout the course with us. So in the first session, our primary objective was to discuss the idea that cancer is not one disease, but many. In the second session, uh, we described the genetic and environmental causes of cancer. In the third session, we described the process of cancer diagnosis and characterization. In the fourth session, we discussed the variety of cancer treatments currently available. In the fifth session, uh, we discussed key considerations after completing cancer treatment. And in today's session, we described some new developments in the field of oncology. I wanted to uh, take a minute to thank all of the faculty who joined us in this course over the past six weeks, including today's speakers, um, Dr. Kong, Dr. Huppert, Dr. Raghavan, Dr. Ko, Dr. Huang, Dr. Kwan, Dr. Dixit, Dr. Sai, Dr. Highland, Dr. Bear, Dr. Newman, Dr. Gosnell, Dr. Beretta, Dr. Velasquez Manana, Dr. Rugo, Dr. Mike Bonwa, Dr. Long Deef, and Dr. Banerjee. Um, those are all the various people across UCSF um, who you heard from over the past six weeks and shared uh, a lot of their knowledge with us. And Dr. Aurora and I, as your course chairs, wanted to thank you um, for joining us on this journey and hope that you uh, enjoyed yourselves with us. And the last slide I will leave you with, uh, the last thought is an um, inspirational quote from an Irish proverb, um, hope is the physician of each uh, misery. And hope has been a theme uh, throughout this course um, and is one of our speakers tonight. Um, but I, I like this quote because I always feel that hope is one of the most important pieces of taking care of people um, with cancer. And there's always a way to inspire hope no matter what somebody's situation is. Um, so that's the thought I just want to leave you with um, as an oncologist and hope that you can take uh, that positivity going forward um, toward whatever you are doing and hope that you've gotten something, uh, both knowledge and a, a sense of positivity and hope out of this course. So thank you so much again for joining us and we wish you the best. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.